I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the second of two special editions of Little Atoms for the 2015 Welcome Book Prize with shortlisted authors Henry Marsh and Marion Coos. On the 29th of April 2015, which is tonight if you're listening on the day of publication, the 2015 Welcome Book Prize will be announced. This is the second of two special editions of Little Atoms with shortlisted authors for the prize, today with Henry Marsh and Marion Coots. If you missed it, you can still hear last week's show with shortlisted authors Miriam Taves, Scott Stossel and Sarah Moss. I just wanted to say a quick thanks to Christopher Bone of FMCM for organising all of these interviews for me. Henry Marsh is one of the UK's foremost neurosurgeons. He has been the subject of two major documentary films, Your Life in Their Hands and The English Surgeon, which won an Emmy. He was made a CBE in 2010 and is the author of Do No Harm, Life, Death and Brain Surgery, which is shortlisted for the 2015 Welcome Book Prize. So, Henry, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me this morning. I imagine people approaching this book, which is ostensibly a memoir of your life as a brain surgeon, armed with their knowledge of watching the likes of House or whatever, is going to be expecting a series of stories of terribly ill, cherubic children, miraculous saved. This really isn't that book, is it? No, it's not. I wanted, well, there are many reasons why I wrote the book, I suppose, but I wanted to give a totally accurate and honest account of what my working life really was like. And there are great triumphs, but there are only triumphs because there are great disasters. And medical memoirs on the whole have fallen into two categories. They're sort of kiss and tell books written by junior doctors or without great experience and without really great responsibility for what happens to patients. And then they're sort of very anodyne books written by retired doctors, which actually, in my experience, sort of cut out half the half the really interesting stuff, which is basically when things go wrong, when things go badly. And as I said, the medicine there wouldn't be great triumphs if there weren't great disasters. If everything one did, particularly if you do very dangerous surgery, which is basically what neurosurgery, brain surgery is. If everything went well and was easy and never went wrong, there'd be nothing very special about it. So I thought it was time to write an honest account. There's an interesting story in the book about how you got into medicine in the first place. Your entry into medicine wasn't very typical. So let's talk about that first. How did you end up there? 
Well, it wasn't typical. It wasn't typical for this country. Um, in America, I've trained um, for various reasons. American neurosurgeons for most of my working life. Um, in America, medicine is a postgraduate degree. Everybody goes to college first to do another degree. It needn't be scientific, and then they go to medical school in their early thirties, which I think is very good. Um, personally, in this country, people tend to go straight from school to medical school, and are that much younger, and often have only done science A levels. I um, was very lucky in a sense that I originally did politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford, which was kind of the automatic thing for me to do from somebody from my background. And uh, for various reasons, I ran away from Oxford and worked as an operating theatre porter in a mining town north of Newcastle called Ashington. And while I was there, I both realised I wanted to come home and return to be a member of the professional middle classes. But in a sense, one of my own choosing, and I'd watched surgeons operate, I've always loved using my hand. And it seemed to me medicine would be a way of combining both sort of practical handwork and, and brain work at the same time. In the event, and I was very lucky that my Oxford College very kindly let me come back, and I then worked very hard to get my degree, because I felt if I'd flunked my first degree, I wouldn't get into medical school. And then I was just very lucky that my father was able to support me financially. I got a grant from what was called the Inner London Education Authority, and my first wife at the time was working and supporting me as well. So I was really terribly lucky. All these things together enabled me then to do an entirely second degree. So I wasn't actually, I didn't qualify as a doctor until I was 29. And then when I did, I was rather disappointed by medicine. I'd always wanted to be a surgeon. But the only surgery I saw was what was called general surgery, which was mainly abdominal. And although two of the consultants whom I studied under as a medical student were deeply impressive people, uh, and I thought were marvellous, I, I wrapped up, I didn't really want to do surgery. At the same time, I didn't really want to do general medicine. And it was then almost by chance when I was working on an intensive care unit. But I, I watched a, a brain op, an aneurysm operation. And I more or less, I did, I fell off my donkey. And I knew immediately that's all I'd ever wanted to do. It was a very odd feeling, almost like deja vu. Now, again, it so happened, my baby son from my first marriage had actually had a brain tumour when he was very young a year before. So that probably influenced me to some extent, but possibly not as much as you might think. But once I discovered brain surgery, although it's a very difficult job, not difficult technically, but difficult psychologically, as I try to explain in the book, once I discovered it, I've never regretted it, although it's changed profoundly in the 35 years I've been doing it. So I feel I've been terribly lucky to have discovered something I, I love so much, even though it's not exactly a love-hate relationship, but it hurts an awful lot sometimes. There's an idea we have of doctors. I think obviously it's a, it's a thing that doctors themselves are, are keen to sort of play up. This idea that their training and you know anatomy and cutting up dead bodies and stuff is part of an initiation rite into like a world almost like a sort of masonic order of initiates that's different to the lay people that they're treating. Neurosurgery is a notch above that as well, isn't it, within the world of doctors? Why does it have that image? Well, I think it's partly historical in that neurosurgery was really the last part of the human body which could be regularly operated upon. And the neurosurgery developed in the early 20th century and the very dominant figure was the American surgeon Harvey Cushing. And it was what, first of all, it's a sealed box and you can't carry out exploratory operations in the way you can on the rest of the body. I mean, with abdominal surgery, you open the abdomen, put your hands in and, and feel uh, to find the pathology. You can't do that with the brain. So it was a bit of a black box. 
And secondly, a quarter of the cardiac output from the heart goes to the brain, thinking as a very energy-intensive, blood-consuming process. So it's a very technical, enormous problems in brain surgery. The brain bleeds a lot. And in the early days of surgery, that was very, very hard to cope with. So it got the reputation of being technically very, very difficult, which it was 100 years ago. And of course, it's terribly dangerous. If you damage a little bit of brain, you can cause catastrophic disability. If you damage a little bit of lung or liver or even a bit of the heart, things will heal and grow back again. Most brain surgery, the brain doesn't heal itself very much. You can remove things which are pressing on it, but it's, it's damage limitation surgery. For a surgery to other parts of the body, things will heal and then actually get better again. So for my perspective, what strikes me as being special about brain surgery is the fact it's so dangerous. And the fact it's so dangerous means every so often an operation will go horribly wrong and a patient will die or be left terribly disabled. And I guess in most brain surgeons, I take the view there are many things worse than death when it comes to brain damage. So it's the decision-making becomes terribly important. And also how you cope with things when they do go badly. And all the mechanisms of psychological self-defense, which all doctors develop, are particularly well-developed in in neurosurgeons. And I think it's it's an interesting area to write about. I want to come on to that a little later in the interview. But before that, like quite crudely, it's also weird right it's the it's not only an organ of the body but it's our mind it's the seat of our personality it's it's who we are yeah and it's complete weird and and just looking at the brain doesn't you don't learn anything about human life looking at the brain other than the incontrovertible fact that consciousness and thinking and feeling is electrochemistry doesn't feel like electrochemistry but it is and it really is a very, very profound mystery. And although there's a vast amount of neuroscientific research going on, in terms of answering the really interesting questions like, you know, how does consciousness arise? Why do we behave in the way we do? Really, we don't know. And then, oh, despite all the brain research, it's mainly just descriptive. And you can show that different bits of the brain light up when you do or think different things. But that doesn't tell you anything about why things happen in the way they do. I want to talk about an average day, which there, clearly there isn't such a thing as an average day in the world of neuroscience. But let's talk about, you know, what would you typically go through? You cycle into work in the morning as you do. I, I cycle into work and then every morning at eight o'clock, I spend an hour mainly with my trainees, all the junior doctors, but often some of the other consultants join in. And we spend an hour having what we call the morning meeting, where we discuss the emergency admissions that have come in over the last night and day, and also discuss the work we'll be doing that day. It's obviously a very good idea, but it's surprisingly unusual in this country. Discussion of the practicalities of the work tends to take place with what are called morbidity and mortality meetings, um, which is after things have gone wrong. It clearly makes much more sense to discuss things before they go wrong. <laughs> to try to avoid making mistakes. And these meetings, I, I created them many years ago. And without wanting to say blow my own trumpet too much, everybody who's worked in our department says they are marvellous and incredibly valuable and very interesting. So that, and that's also it's a very enjoyable part of the day. It's a bit of team building. If you haven't managed to make a few good jokes, often at the patient's expense, yeah, I feel the meetings failed. So it's both sort of team building and discussion and mistake of trying to avoid mistakes. And then it depends on the day of the week. I'll either be operating um, or doing outpatients. There's a vast amount of paperwork in the modern NHS. So, so it's either that, it's either paperwork, an outpatient clinic or operating. 
And 20 years ago, I was only one of three consultants in my department. So I was working, operating three or four days a week. And in recent years, it's been down to two days a week. And I've actually retired from full-time work just last week. And, And my successors will only operate one day a week. I mean, it's bizarre. There's all this stuff out there about a seven-day-a-week NHS and wasted resources. But there's such a discrepancy has developed between the number of doctors and the operating facilities and beds that you have these highly trained brain surgeons and they only operate one day a week. Quite extraordinary. And what sort of common, what are the most common brain malaises that you will find yourself repeatedly dealing with? Well, the trauma work is very simple. That's head injuries or um, spontaneous hemorrhages in the brain. That that just involves drilling a hole in the skull and letting the blood out. And that's usually done by the the junior doctors, Uh, not because the senior doctors are lazy, because simply it's very simple surgery. With other branches of medicine, the emergency surgery can actually be very complex, and the problem of getting consultant cover is is more difficult. So it's, it's, it's emergency work of that sort, and then it's brain tumours, which admittedly is my main speciality, and various and spinal surgery is a large part of neurosurgery. And then the various other, it used to be a large part of the operating, what led me to become a brain surgeon, was operating on things called aneurysms, which are little blowouts on the blood vessels in the brain. And it took me about, I suppose, 15 years to become a a good aneurysm, or hopefully a good aneurysm surgeon, is very difficult, very delicate, dangerous surgery. But then within a period of a few years, it was rendered almost completely redundant by technological change, by what are called endovascular techniques, where the, the aneurysm is blocked off from the inside, putting very fine catheters up the blood vessels, so you don't have to sore a hole in the patient's head, which is wonderful for the patients, but less wonderful for the surgeons, because it was terribly challenging, exciting surgery, and now there's less to do. So medical progress is, is good for patients, but not always good for doctors. I'm Ben Goldacre. You're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about something you raised a while ago then. So as I said, this book is a series, you know, a series of stories about operations that you've carried out. And and while there are ones where there is a happy ending, the ones that are the most memorable, the ones that stick out to me were the ones where there is some sort of catastrophic outcome. And of course, no doubt that is how it works for you as well, right? Those are the ones you remember most vividly. Yes, exactly. How do you cope with the fact that, you know, in your day-to-day work, you can, as you describe it in the book, wreck somebody? When, you, um, when you're when you a young consultant, it's devastating, and it takes you weeks to get over it. But you've trained with people, you've seen your bosses have similar disasters, you know it comes with the territory. So I, when I had my first disasters as a young consultant, I find it in a sense very consoling to remember the people who trained me, whom I greatly respected. I respected all the people who trained me, but they had disasters, and I knew they suffered, but one, one, you don't talk about it openly very much. But it was very helpful to know the people I revered had problems as well. So that helps a bit. And then as the years go by, 
and the disasters continue to happen from time to time. I, I quote in the book this wonderful thing written by the French surgeon René Lariche, saying all surgeons carry within themselves a cemetery, and it's a mm-hmm. place to which they must go from time to time, and it's a place full of bitterness and regret. Uh, and you find, as, as the years go by, I found anyway, but although I was still terribly upset, and it's partly fear, you're frightened when things, you're frightened of the family or frightened of complaints of litigation. It's an absolute nightmare. But you know you survived it. The patient may not have survived it last time round, but I'll survive it. I've been through it before. And with the passage of time, the, the hurt gets less. But the p- important thing, which is also what the book's about, is we, only, we all know in life we only learn by making mistakes. And it's terribly important in medicine and particularly in surgery. But you're honest at least of yourself about when, if something has gone wrong, whether, you, whether things could have been done differently or not. And there are all manners of way in which, as surgeons, we deny this. You know, we pretend we are reluctant to face up to the truth because it's so painful. When you're a young doctor, when you're a medical student, it's easy to feel sympathy for patients because you're not responsible for what happens to them. But once you become a doctor, you start sticking needles into them. You have to hurt people. You have to break bad news. And you have to pretend to a greater level of competence and experience than you know you really have because patients don't like it if they see young doctors. And they so obviously they, they, they say, I don't know what to do. So, and of course, the best way of deceiving other people is to deceive yourself. So all doctors, to a greater or lesser extent, develop a fair amount of self-deception. And it's something you need, in a way, to help you do the work. But it's something you also need to admit and recognise. So when you do make mistakes, you will learn something from them and do better next time. So it's a subtle balance, as of everything in life. By my age, coming up for retirement, it's much easier to look back and look at all the mistakes I've made and, and in a sense, be be honest about them, I think. But that's something that comes of age and then experience. And often as well, when there is a success in this book, it's not necessarily you're miraculously saved, but it's you might live for another three or four years or something. Yes, you know, an awful lot of, an awful lot. I mean, it's a rather silly quote, when the air hits your brain, you're never the same again. That's not entirely true. As I said earlier, brain surgery is basically damage limitation as often as not, rather than repairing things. I mean, we do repair with tumours that are pressing on the brain, tumours typically called meningiomas or neuronomas. You can take the pressure off the brain, the patient gets completely better. But an awful lot of conditions, you're prolonging people's lives. After all, to say you're curing somebody means they're going to die from something else. You know, it all ends in tears sooner or later. But again, when I was younger, if an operation went well, I had a great sense of triumph. As I got older, it was more a great sense of relief (laughs) that things hadn't gone badly. And you learned, I think, you become increasingly humble as the years go by. At least I I think I have, probably. I mentioned earlier the idea of doctors being, you know, seeing themselves as different from lay people. But they are human beings and you also get ill. And there's um, numerous rather amusing stories in in this book about not only yourself breaking your leg at one point, but as you mentioned, you know, you you experienced illness through the illness of your son. But also there are stories of doctors that end up in in the hospital with brain injuries or with tumours. So what's it like for a doctor to go through the, the medical procedures what's it like for a doctor to treat another doctor i think most doctors say they didn't really understand what their patients are going through until they became patients themselves and most healthcare is doled out by healthy young doctors and nurses who however nice they are don't really understand 
just that what an awful experience it is to be a patient, both because in this country, the hospitals are so awful in terms of great big bays and you know, all, all our patients are chronically sleep deprived. And yet there was something I only really saw through the eyes of my second wife, who's actually a, a very famous social anthropologist, a writer called Kate Fox, who for various reasons, has often been in hospital. And she pointed out to me that the last thing you get in hospital in this country, in the NHS hospitals, and don't get me wrong, I'm a great, tremendous believer and champion of the NHS, the last thing you get is peace, rest or quiet. And yet most doctors and nurses just don't realise that. They're so used to patients being like cattles in a cattle shed that they don't don't realise that until they become patients themselves. It's a sad fact of human life that there's no substitute personal experience. You spent a couple of decades going back and forth working in the Ukraine. I've just come back from there. I spent the last two weeks there, in fact. Yeah, indeed. One of the the films I mentioned at the beginning, The English Surgeon, is is about that story. So let's talk about why you why you ended up there, how you got involved in that, and what the conditions. Well, I got I, I was taken out there by chance in 1992, just after the Soviet Union had fallen apart, by an English businessman who was hoping to sell medical equipment in Kiev, and there was a big neurosurgical hospital there, and he thought, well, if he took a British neurosurgeon along to give some lectures, it would sort of create goodwill. That's how I went there the first time. It so happened when I'd done politics and economics at Oxford, I'd been particularly interested in the Soviet Union. I did a special paper in that. And I'd always been interested in Russia, though I don't speak Russian or Ukrainian and still don't, alas. So I'd always been fascinated by the country. And well, the Ukraine's not Russia, of course. But and I knew it was terribly important, that place. And, and the problems, I met a young doctor there, called Igor Kurilets, with whom I've been working ever since. And the problems he faced professionally uh, are not just the technical problems of having terrible equipment and terrible conditions, which were the, was the case at the time. The problems he faced were in a sort of microcosm of the problems that now everybody realizes are going on, which is Ukraine being sort of balanced between East and West. Uh, and visit the country itself was split between a Russo-Russo-file East and a Russo-hating Russophobe West. So I said for years to people, Ukraine, they always say, well, isn't it part of Russia? I'd say, no, 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 it's not part of Russia. And it's a very important country. And now, of course, I can tell people I told you so, because it's become this sort of flashpoint and focus for all some very worrying things going on in Eastern Europe. Yeah, and in the you know, the in the book, the story is, you know, you're going there after the, you know, after after the fall of the Soviet Union. The conditions are obviously terrible and there's still bureaucracy and it's a story of, you know, that changing. But of course now, as you've just mentioned, and what isn't we don't get that far in the book is that there is now pretty much a civil war going on so yeah you wouldn't know i was, asked, I was there for the last two weeks mainly in the west and kiev and you wouldn't externally there's no obvious civil war going on but the economy is in a terrible state there's virtually i wouldn't say there's virtually no traffic but the traffic has dropped by about 70 or 80 percent in kiev because people can no longer afford the petrol that's the most obvious change but there i don't know what's going to happen it's a very bad and there's rise of what is really fashion militant nationalism in Russia is really very frightening. You just pointed out that you have now retired, finished working mm-hmm. as a neurosurgeon, and and the other one of the other stories of this book is the changing of the the NHS, the working yes. conditions, and the practices over the um, over the course of your career. And I mean, obviously now you know we're at a point where we perceive the NHS as being constantly threatened by successive governments, but also this is a story of changing practices. And to be blunt, you're not getting away with being able to shout it people anymore yes that's right so tell us about where we are now well when i when i became a consultant in the 1980s it was just at the beginning of margaret thatcher's sort of managerialization of the nhs 
after something called the Griffiths Report, written by the managing director of Sainsbury's. And was it, it was the idea that the NHS was intrinsically flawed and inefficient because it, wasn't, it didn't have a market. It wasn't like a business. And there's been this long process ever since of trying to turn the NHS into a sort of business with a market. So they've introduced the internal market and incentives and fines and a tariff for, so money in theory follows the patient. But the underlying problem is that healthcare is terribly expensive. And this country historically has spent less on healthcare than any other developed country. That changed under Blair and Brown in the in the early years of the current century. But if we're back to that situation again now, but the demand for healthcare for a variety of reasons is totally outstripping the resources being put into it. And it's very difficult to know what to do about it. America spends a grotesque amount of money on healthcare compared to the rest of the world. Although it's, it's health global outcomes for life expectancy and things like that are actually rather bad compared to the developed world. So there is a, a problem that and the health that the NHS I started working in was essentially run by the senior doctors, for better or for worse. And that's certainly not the case now. But the problem now is that as a doctor, as a surgeon, I haven't fully retired. I'll be going on working one day a week for a while to come and doing some operating, but mainly teaching. My duty is to the patients. It's not to the hospital. It's not to the NHS. And that's how it should be. Patients would not want to be treated by doctors who were making decisions on the grounds it was better for the hospital or the government finances than for them. At the same time, healthcare is madly expensive. If doctors had unrestricted budgets, they'd spend all the money. You could spend the entire national income on healthcare. The whole population would still die. So there is this constant tension in healthcare about how do you how do you get the best value for money, but at the same time not compromising what used to be called the doctor-patient relationship. Um, and it's difficult for the managers because although there are some senior doctors in management, an awful lot of them aren't. And there's bound to be conflict and tension between the managers and doctors. Because if doctors continue to have this sense of their first and really only duty is to the patient, if you then treat them just as sort of cogs in a machine in a business type sort of way, they end up demoralised and people are going to work less hard. There's always data out there about more and more GPs wanting to retire early. I don't know any senior doctors in the hospital service who aren't deeply demoralised and fed up. So, and if that means people are demoralised, they work less willingly and less, and work less hard. So it's hard to get the balance right. One final question then: What does this shortlisting for the Welcome Book Prize mean to you? Well, the book's been, <laughs> the book's been shortlisted for so many literary prizes, and not won any of them. <laughs> I've given up thinking about it. But I, I'm afraid that I'll have to, I'll have to go to the award ceremony. And despite all the disappointments of the last year, I will still be terribly anxious to win it and then very disappointed when I don't. Of course, from a practical point of view, what matters is book sales and it's a shortlisting, which, and the book's done very well. So I'll try very hard not to, not to hope for anything, but my wish to be top <laughs> will get the better of me, I'm afraid, for a few minutes. <laughs> So I've been talking to Henry Marsh about his book, Do No Harm, Stories of Life, Death and Brain Surgery. Henry, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. It's a pleasure.
I'm Emily Mayhew, you're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Marianne Coots is an artist and writer. She wrote the introduction to art critic Tom Lubbock's memoir Until Further Notice, I Am Alive, which was published by Granter in 2012. She is a lecturer in fine arts at Goldsmiths College and the author of a memoir, The Iceberg, which was shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize for Nonfiction in 2014 and has now been shortlisted for the 2015 Welcome Book Prize. So, Marion, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me this afternoon. Thanks, brilliant. Describe to me what this book is about. Um, the Iceberg is, I suppose, on one level, an account of a time period it's tom tom lubbock was my husband and uh it's an account of our lives that's me and tom and our child eugene from the point of tom's diagnosis with a brain tumor in september 2008 to the point of his death so in a sense it, it sort of is quite it sort of very sharply follows that time it, it isn't like a kind of a memoir of our lives in any other sense than it, it goes from that moment to the moment of his death that sort of temporality is quite important to it because it kind of starts at the point when we were given this news really out of the blue that he had a tumor called glioblastoma if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Form, which is a very bad tumor and a very rare tumor to have. And before that point, we didn't have, it wasn't like we were worried about anything or even kind of, I don't know, we didn't really have, he had a fit and that's how we sort of went and investigated it. But it was sort of, I think at the start, it, it was kind of a, sort of a conceptual issue. It was like, oh, you are very seriously ill. And the shock of that and the sort of what, how, what follows from that shock in a way is the kind of driver of the book. 
Tom was a writer and a thinker, and um, that's what he's been doing all his life. He was the art critic of The Independent for very many years. Um, he produced articles, reviews every week, and he also did a column, which a lot of people really loved, called Great Works, which was essentially a sort of focus on a single painting, a single image. He, you know, he was, he was a working journalist, and the tumour was in the area of speech and language, so we knew immediately that his, essentially, all those things which he did, all the things which sort of very bound up with his identity and who he was, were going to come under attack, quite severely under attack. So it was a real kind of, uh, I don't know, the whole business of words and word finding and Tom's attitude towards his illness, which he wrote about in his book, Until Further Notice I'm Alive. That was very much what we were embedded in. We were kind of immersed in this very sort of extreme situation, which was had sort of catastrophic repercussions on language, essentially, and eventually on it killed him. And indeed, you've just mentioned Tom's memoir, Until Further Notice, I Am Alive, which was you know, made up basically of, of the diary he was writing while he was ill. And now you, you've written another book about that same process, obviously from your perspective, but why did you want to write this book too? I didn't really, it didn't start as a book. It wasn't, there wasn't any coherent sense I'm writing a book. When I, when I started the material which became the book, I was in no sense a writer. I wasn't an aspiring writer. I wasn't any writer. Uh, I was a visual artist when, you know, when Tom was diagnosed and we just had a child, you know, our child was 18 months old. So I was very much preoccupied with that kind of business about coming out of a, a space in which you've just had a baby and thinking, oh yes, what was I doing? Where was my career? How can I make things work? You know, so I kind of, it wasn't like there was any, I mean, I'm not particularly in a way interested in a kind of memoir per se. I think what happened was that we were, you know, as soon as you were diagnosed, we had Everything thrown at us, you know, the whole treatment options. He had a, he had brain surgery within about a month, and then you know chemo and radiotherapy. So it was it seemed very clear that nothing else was going to get done in a way. Um, it was a real emergency situation, and I stopped really then and there. I stopped doing any kind of creative work that I was doing, and I packed up my studio very quickly. And um, it was you know all hands on deck really. And how would we survive this? Would we survive this? We knew it was very uh, serious diagnosis we didn't know how much time we had and so all the things that you sort of thought you were involved in kind of go out the window really I mean Tom's book it wasn't so much a diary that he was doing it was kind of it was a way of I mean it's very it's a very clear voice it's a very sort of distinct voice and one of the in a way it's, it's kind of quite his book is quite hermetic it doesn't really talk about very many other people it talks about me and our child it's kind of quite a sort of it's a very sort of philosophical text it's very you know it's very um focused and in a way i think what was going on around us was quite focused on illness but also contained a great deal of noise almost all the kind of background noise of the stuff that you have to deal with when you're in that situation but it by no means started as a book at all it kind of started as me writing down things almost against annihilation almost against going under you know and it was almost like writing down things so I could look at them later almost like a kind of notational thing it's right the book is very much bound up with seeing and looking and I think it was I, I thought of it as like each because you know, it's written in these numbered sections in these very short sections and they came out very much of that initial process of oh yes I want to think about this I want to think about this this is something I want to think about you know and almost like just putting them down with, without any thought about what they were or what you're going to do with them and it was, in a way, trying to trying to understand what was happening on so many levels, what was happening to us as a trio, the impact on our child, the whole kind of medical sort of huge entourage, the whole kind of social stuff. All, it was just so much to think about and so much to kind of try and grab hold of, really. 
and not all of it terrible. That's the other curious thing, you know. I mean, because we were kind of, you know, at the time of diagnosis, we were a family of three and we very much enjoyed that being a new family of three. And then what happens when something like that occurs? I don't know, the fact that you don't have, you actually stop enjoying each other. That's quite a sort of important thing to take note of, you know. So what, what happens to happiness? You know, what happens to all that kind of thing? You say there, you, you know, you, you didn't think of yourself as a writer. You were an artist. And indeed, one of the major themes of this book is really how how you, you know you you're unable to continue working as an artist because suddenly you, you have this the work of taking care of Tom, of raising your child, of dealing with you know the management of everything around that. And but I didn't really want to. I didn't have anything I wanted to make either. There wasn't any. It wasn't like I was thinking, oh, I wish I could go and do that. I just didn't care. <laughs> You know what I mean? That's sort of the huge shift of focus, the huge shift of what the imperatives are and what is what is important. That that I think becomes really clear. Well, what I was going to ask was, I mean, you're often very frank in in the book about how you know how often you you break down and fail to cope with that huge burden of work. And so I wanted to ask, really, what you mentioned you were writing things down as a means of coping. So, like, first of all, is that another reason to write the book as a way of dealing with it? But also when because you were so busy how did you find the time to do it when was this book written well it was it much a means of coping as a means of looking at things i mean coping you know coping smoking you just get on with it really it was a kind of means of sort of being able to think and being able to kind of wanting being really struck by the, the, the sort of i don't know the texture of experience under these conditions is very changed everything is so changed the whole sense you know one's whole sense of time if you're married to someone and essentially they're told they're going to die which is pretty much what happened really i mean not in so many words but really you know you don't spend a lot of, i don't know you just everything everything is up for grabs in a way and sort of what happens to that how that feels you know what happens to love and what happens to kind of all the kind of things that you you sort of were guided by before you know and like i say it is a very it's very concerned with the visual it's very concerned with things with stuff with material with the the stuff of the sort of texture of our lives in a way it was a way of kind of looking at things and, and because I didn't have time to actually or really the inclination to do it then it was it kind of started out in this very notational quite a violent way I think there's a lot of it's like oh yeah I want to see this I want to see this I want to think about this and I guess I started writing down any material at all probably about mid 2009 but it really wasn't it wasn't you know it was just tiny little they started as word documents all separate loads and loads of them and then over time I realized I was thinking about these things when I wasn't you know I do it at night sometimes I mean there wasn't a lot of sleeping going on in our house it just everything was changed everything was sort of Tom was affected by his drugs and we were all insomniac and it was all there was no there was no day or night really it was very much shifted so somehow in that period I found Oh, I just started to write, really. I suppose that's all I can say. And it didn't become a book, the idea of a book, until very, very much later. Now, I'm not going to ask you to talk through the trajectory of Tom's illness. I mean, I think that's just taking a step back. I mean, again, we've mentioned a couple of times that you, you say you're not a writer, but this is an incredibly accomplished, beautifully written book, even before we get to the subject matter, you know, the, what the deeply affected subject matter is. But I mean, yeah, I didn't start as a writer. I wasn't thinking I was a writer. Now I wouldn't say I wasn't a writer. I mean, I, I kind of think there's a, that whole space of language. And very, I suppose the big, the big issue was, you know, Tom was losing language language so he was finding words very difficult to find and so I was helping him find words so it was a real collective the whole business of word finding was very collective which is of course a very unusual and strange position to be in 
And what happened to communication under those circumstances? And the fact was that he could always find until very, very, very late on, even though it cost immense amounts of energy and you could scarcely believe it possible from his, his actual spoken language, he could always find the right words. And so that, just to witness that, as a kind of, you know, make, makes you think about what is consciousness and what is going on here? You know, all those all those kind of building blocks that we think we go by and here it was being, everything was being shuffled about. You know, it was all, it was all, um, I don't know, it felt very, very important to take note of things, to be attentive to all this stuff somehow. No, absolutely. And this is where, that's where I was, I was going to go next. I mean, I was saying I didn't, I didn't want to talk about the illness as such, because I think it's better experienced by reading this book, because the cumulative effect is, is just devastating and moving and, and, and sometimes, you know, just difficult to read, but it's an amazing accomplishment. And yeah, what I wanted to get onto was this idea that, you know, Tom, he continued to work, right? He made this decision that he wanted to continue to write as far as possible and ironically the tumor is in the part of his brain that controls speech and language and yet as you've just described it's until very late that he's you know he continues to write to work to use language in that way until very late on doesn't he well he continued it wasn't even a decision i mean that was his identity that was who he was and that was again the very strange and rare and rather lovely thing was that actually and this could have been so very different. One is always aware of like the role of minute sort of vagaries of chance. His identity wasn't taken. His personality wasn't changed. You know, some people have brain tumors and actually they don't recognize their loved ones or they become, they their personality becomes in some way disordered. And that didn't happen to us. So it was this very kind of amazing thing that he was very much there. And, but the actual communication with him got more and more difficult and it didn't it, it didn't get so difficult for the first year but then things when things start to go wrong they start to go wrong very quickly with a tumor like that and so things became kind of exponentially much much more difficult so we had this rather and that's one of the sort of themes of the book as it were that kind of business of actually you know people would say to me oh I can't believe it, you know, how you're managing, it's awful, how you're coping. And I'd say, actually, you know, this is the good bit because he's still here. Do you know what I mean? We were having this experience, this time together, which was quite extraordinary. And that's a very complicated thing. That was not something you could figure out in advance, you know. And so I, and those were sort of a part of the puzzle, as it were, of thinking, what happens here? You know, what sort of, I don't know. It's, it was all somehow I wanted to really be able to kind of look at aspects of this this catastrophe which was at the same time we were we were sort of living through and and living in a proper sense you know not sort of dying through but actually living through and that's a kind of odd thing how everything is is actually the same as its opposite in a funny way so yeah lots of lots of stuff like that i was trying to grab hold of in certain ways i think and all the time his work is being published so i wanted to talk just a little about what i mean how that catastrophe affected his work well, the writing, his, his verbal language became quite impenetrable at a certain point. I mean, again, quite late on, he, he was pretty good. He was a fantastic improviser and he was fantastically funny. So he, we, we could, in a way, um, sometimes what happened was, you know, he would just have the wrong word and there'd be like a spoonerism or he'd, he'd get the syllables wrong. And because of my, you know, because we were very close, I could always understand him. That wasn't really a problem. Though sometimes it took longer and longer. But um, his written language, his actual, his typing, as it were, his, you know, when I say typing, I mean his computer work. Um, he could do that. It took completely forever. It took hours and hours and hours. And he'd write in the night. You know, we, like I say, we just, we just didn't really sleep at all. Um, he'd write in the night, but he'd, you know, he'd filed his last article, I think, in... Um, 
end of September, something like September the 28th, uh, 2010, which really, you know, if you'd have known him, you'd have thought that was completely impossible. And the article is, you know, it went out in the paper. People read it and nobody would be any the wiser. You know what I mean? But there's the sort of effort, the absolute effort for that, the business of getting things right with words. I mean, that was always his thing, you know, to be very, very, he was a great stylist and he was very sort of focused, you know, he, he was very, a kind of plain in a way, he, he, he had a very conversational voice in a sense. And that's very much still there in those late writings. And so there was an awful lot that he got done. There was an awful lot that he wanted to say through the particular medium that he was using, which was essentially talking about art and artworks. The other major theme of the book is that coincidentally, at the same time that Tom is losing his language, your son is starting to speak. Well, Eugene was 18 months old. Eugene in the book is called Ev. It's just kind of, I wanted to give him a sort of a name to hide behind. You know, he was sort of very young at the time it all kicked off. But he was, he yeah, he was 18 months. His language was just beginning. And again, that's a sort of I don't know. I don't really go for irony. I don't think it makes any sense in terms of our situation. But uh, it just that was what was happening. And again, it was possible to sort of you didn't stop enjoying that stuff. You know, you couldn't just I don't know. Somehow the fact you still had to continue to live <laughs> is a sort of, you know, perhaps much easier if you just like go to bed and forget about it or something. But, you know, we didn't. We still had to continue to live. And actually, we, there was lots of stuff we wanted to do. So the kind of conflict between this the daily life, the doing and the enjoyment of doing, and the enjoyment of all the stuff that we enjoyed before, to a degree, and then the whole kind of paraphernalia of illness, and then the whole paraphernalia of what happens when essentially your future is curtailed. You know, we all go along with these sort of, with the idea that, oh yeah, we have futures somewhere, you know, we're sort of, we're sort of, even when we don't think about it very much, you know, we're kind of in this point between what we've done and what we're going to do. And what happens to you sort of psychologically when you sort of, when you actually know that your future is, has a limit, a very specific limit, and things, whatever they, however they are now, they're going to get worse. That's quite, that has a huge impact on everything, on how you see, on how you think, on how you deal, you know, all those kind of things. And so, you know, Eugene was growing up and we were continuing to be his parents and there was lots of stuff that happened that was very great. And that, but it required a lot of energy, you know, things, I don't know, we were all very, very, very tired. I mean, fatigue is a huge thing, both, you know, in terms of grief bringing fatigue, which I had no idea about. I hadn't realized that. I would keep thinking, oh, why am I feeling so terribly tired? And then my counselor said, oh, you know, grief is incredibly fatiguing. I thought, yes, that's, you know, I do feel like I'm just half dead all the time, really. And But that, how you kind of have to struggle with that and those things you have to sort of keep going through, as it were. The language centre of our brain, as I've mentioned, this is where Tom's tumour was. Eugene is learning his language. Do you notice any sort of parallels in the similarities between the way a language is learned and a language is lost? It was quite, a, I think, you know, tumours of the kind that Tom had were extreme, extremely unusual. And where, as I understand it, where a tumour grows in the brain or where it starts or how it operates is very, 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 like I say, these, these things can have huge, if, uh, the tiniest, distinctions or changes can have huge effects and also a person's kind of um, how their you know their sort of body makeup anyway is going to make a difference you know sort of what is the kind of surround for the thing to, to grow in or whatever and also you know character makes a huge difference I think how you deal with stuff so no it wasn't like that wasn't the way it sort of came across really I mean we're all you know Eugene's a very articulate child and obviously articulacy and 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 words and playing with words and enjoying words was a huge part of our family makeup and still is. So in a sense, there was always things, 
I don't know, there were always things to enjoy in a strange way. There were always things to enjoy. Christopher Bolin. Check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. Another serendipitous thing, one of the other shortlisted writers for this prize this year is uh, Henry Marsh, who's a, a very eminent neurosurgeon. I've just interviewed him as well. And in- I wanted to know really what what was your experience of that world from the other side of, you know, from the perspective of a customer? Oh, don't call me a customer, God, no. That's a very bad word. No. I repudiate that and I refuse it wholeheartedly. Um, you, we, you know, we were chucked in at the very, very deep end. I, I have very little experience of illness. Tom has none. And suddenly you're in there and you've got all these new people you kind of know and trust or don't trust. We had both incredibly brilliant experiences with the NHS. I mean, as a whole, they were fantastic on a sort of person-to-person basis. I think they were re- it was really rather awe-inspiring to see and to see the speed at which they moved on our behalf. Obviously, this was a very, you know, clearly emergency situation. Tom's attitude was rather, rather good. I mean, he he said, he said, I want to be treated like an organism, you know, and he was very sort of, he wanted to have things directly told to him. And they generally were. We trusted our surgeon. We trusted our oncologist. We just did. We simply liked them. We met them. We believed in their capacity to sort things out in as much as they could sort things out. Nobody ever gave us false promises. Nobody ever said, oh, we're going to cure you because that was clearly nonsense. So, you know, there's there's an element of, I mean, that kind of human interaction sort of was amazing, really. Where things kind of failed in, in a sense for us was more on an institutional level and quite late on. It was like what happens to a person who's very, you know, who is terminally ill, who is not elderly, who has a young family and sort of where do you actually go? So the whole, there's a great teetering precipice which opens up around the time when Tom could no longer live at home and he went, we were six weeks in Guy's Hospital and obviously we, we can't live there, you know, and the thing that I knew that Tom wanted and that I wanted and that our boy wanted was that we all lived together. So that's what I was working towards and that was very not that was very much not a given. There was no pathway to make that happen until the hospice came along. So the hospice, in a sense, was gave us really exactly what we needed. And that was for the last, I think, five or six weeks of Tom's life. We just moved in. You know, you can, we moved in. Tom died in Trinity Hospice in Clapham. So that was like really a major, major thing that happened. And without that, I don't think I would have written this book. I don't think I would be able to talk so coherently about the, our experience. You know, because our experience did end in this way, which was actually a place in extremis where we could be. 
and where we could continue to enjoy each other and continue to enjoy his friends. Tom's experience with his, with, well, our experience with our friends was enormously important. It was fantastically social. We weren't people who wanted to hide away. We weren't people who wanted to pretend it wasn't happening. We kind of did very much the opposite of that. So there was always this kind of huge, this gargantuan social life going on. And that seemed to me very important for Tom, for his continuing happiness for his continuing enjoyment so I wanted to keep that going as well and obviously that's quite difficult to do in a ward in guys hospital you know and we did our best but it's not it's not really going to work it's not really so you know it's fairly untenable so I think the the business about hospices and how important that was I would say was pretty key now obviously the hospices is part funded by the state and part funded by um, donation but it really it really when we got there and like I say there was a, a big risk that we might not have got there but when we got there it meant that we could in a certain way well I certainly could relax I knew that Tom was cared for I knew that his absolutely all his medical stuff was being attended to his drugs and everything and our child could live there you know and we spent Christmas we had a Christmas there and that was really important because he died Tom died in a very early January in uh, 2011 I asked you earlier on if writing this book had helped you to deal with the situation. I want to talk about how how do you think other people reading it are going to find it? What has the reaction been? It's been it's been really amazing actually. Um I kind of I suppose I have to say I didn't write it in order to deal better with it somehow. I wrote it because I sort of had to. There was just there was too much I wanted to say and I wanted to say these things in the words. You know, it was almost like it was so specific. I wanted to use these particular words somehow. It's a, you know, it's a work of language to a degree. And it kind of in that sense it felt something similar though not also very different from other ways that I've experienced the act of making a piece of work you know it was like very much a sort of oh yeah this is a work okay I know what to do with it you know so but I it wasn't like um I didn't actually think about other people very much at all to be honest and I didn't I certainly didn't yeah I didn't have any prior thoughts about people I didn't know reading it somehow Uh, but I've been very very moved by you know I mean, I've had emails, I've had various messages from people who are either have been in this situation or have family who were in this situation or are currently in this situation or have loved ones in this situation. And um, they seem to find it a very good thing. They seem to find it somehow in some way a solace or in some way useful. And for that, I, I'm, I think that's really amazing. And I'm very, I'm very pleased about that. But I, again, I say I, I did not in advance give any thought to how it might be taken up which sounds kind of strange but that just wasn't the way it was and do you find that is that then a sort of almost an extra layer of responsibility in that you know you're now the the person who's written this fantastic book about dealing with the aftermath of a death and yet yeah that is still the life you and your son are obviously are obviously living day to day well in a funny way of course we weren't dealing with the aftermath of a death we were dealing with Prior to Tom's death, it absolutely stops at the point of his dying. And I, you know, I've written in a way not one word about what happened afterwards. And it was partly to sort of, um, I don't know, just because of the, you know, the, the sort of somehow the complexity of it all and the fact that actually while we were dying, we were also living, you know, and what is living under these circumstances. We both, it, I can't remember if it was me or Tom, it, it was like, it was both a disaster and an adventure. You know, Tom felt very, it felt to me like he was very kind of pioneering in his, in his, in his thinking about it and his, in his language use and his sort of ability to sort of make sense or make some, 
I don't know, to be very, um, to keep on being him, to keep on sort of writing, thinking, to sort of, you know, his, the very last chapter of his book is, is really written in dated October 2010. And, it's, you know, he's writing about his situation from the inside. What is it like to not have language? But he's using language to say that, you know. And again, that was huge. That was hard one to a degree, which I can hardly explain. You know, it's like every every single syllable somehow needed to be worked out. But I, I just thought that was rather that was so astonishing, you know. And so it wasn't the aftermath of a death. It was almost like, and because we had this rather unusual situation of we were told here it is, this is this illness. And like I say, it, it existed at first as a kind of concept. And what do you do with that knowledge? I mean, one of the things that Tom says in his book, he says, of course, I'm helpless. So what do I do with helplessness? You know, that actual, that's a kind of both a, a sort of comic point and a real actual thing, you know, a kind of trigger. You know, what do you actually do under these circumstances? And in a way, we just, I don't know, we just were able to do an enormous amount of things. We're able to sort of somehow, there was a lot of stuff going on that he wanted about sort of... um working out his writing for publication. I mean, as well as Until Further Notice I'm Alive, there's two books of collected essays that have come out since his death. And they were all, they were both orchestrated and sort of edited and worked on in the last year of his life. So it was this tremendous kind of busyness and, um, I don't know, real, very much connected with being able to pinpoint what you were feeling and being able to sort of be really specific about it. Just one final question then, then we'll finish. What does it mean to you that the book's been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? It's, I'm, I, I'm delighted. I mean, I think it's fantastic. Um, I mean, interestingly, I had, a, I had some funding for a film from the Welcome in 2008. One of the last pieces I made before Tom got diagnosed was a, a piece which Welcome funded and commissioned. And that was, a, you know, it's a 35mm film. It almost feels like it belongs to a different life. So there's a kind of funny bracketing or something. It's like, you know, I very much enjoyed working with them then. It was working with the, the art department, the curators, and with the artifacts, you know, the stuff, the objects collected by Henry Welcome. And it just feels rather wonderful to have something completely different somehow come into that orbit. No, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think all the other books on the shortlist, they sound really amazing. It's a bonus. Again, if you know, it's like I didn't set out to write a book and now I have written a book. It's just a complete joy that people <laughs> like it enough or rate it enough to sort of say, oh, yes, we'll put this up for this or we'll do this. And there's a very much a difference between, you know, it's, a book is a work. It's a kind of artifact. It's a made thing. And it's not the same as experience, you know. So the experience was the experience. And there are many things about the experience that are not in the book, obviously. You know, and the book is a work of language. And so it talks about that experience in a really, really, really specific way. And there's a big gap between those things, you know, so the, the, the idea of this thing, of course, it did happen and it is ours and it's our, we kind of own it. We kind of own that recent history and we live with it. You know, our child lives with it, I live with it. But it's rather a wonderful thing to have someone then come along and say, ah, oh, yes, what, what you've done here. I don't know, just to have that sort of read and thought about and talked about is really good. Because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff about how we approach death and about the language of our ending that I think is really important and not, you know, not to kind of gloss these things and not to fudge these things and not to kind of look away in a sense. I think if the book tries to do anything, it tries not to look away. I think that's a really important fact about it. I've been talking to Marion Coots. We've been talking about her memoir, The Iceberg. So Marion, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM.
The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism, and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.